Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. At 17, she entered the all-white world of a Catholic convent and stayed for almost 13 years. Then she spent the rest of her life helping America build a better we. Deborah Plummer made it her mission in life to turn fear into love. She's been doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work for nearly three decades. Dr. Deborah Plummer has a PhD in psychology from Kent State University. She's a psychologist, university professor, author, and speaker on topics central to racial equality, inclusion, and mutual respect. She's done diversity consultations for countless corporations, nonprofits, hospitals, government organizations, and universities. Deborah wrote the book, Some of My Friends Are, which examines how cross-racial friendships work and fail in America. She's editor of the Handbook of Diversity and author of Advancing Inclusion and Racing Across the Lines. And she said I could call her Debbie today. So Debbie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I feel like what a victory for me to get you. I know it's such a busy time. I'm going to start with kind of your beginnings here. You grew up in Cleveland, and then you left and you came back. Yes. So what brought you back to Cleveland? What brought me back to Cleveland, I think, is the vibrancy of the city. And then also my connections. There's nothing like being in a place where they know your history and that you share a long memory with your lifespan. That's what brought me back. And family, of course. And you have a second home in Boston. Yes. So when it comes to baseball, who do you cheer for? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my mom was a great Indians fan, even when she moved with us to the Boston area. So definitely stay with Cleveland. All right. So my understanding is your mom was from Panama and your dad was from Jamaica. Correct. How did that shape your racial identity? I mean, I find it so interesting, people's backgrounds. That is a good question because it really did in the sense of my racial identity as an African-American and more so, I think, in embracing the mixture of that racial identity. My mom was Spanish speaking. That was her first language. And so growing up in inner city Cleveland, what was now known as inner city Cleveland, I just knew it as the Glenville area when I was growing up, it really did shape my understanding of race because everyone in our neighborhood was from the South in the spirit of the great migration of that time. And so my parents, though not being from the South, you know, we were eating different foods. You know, we were Catholic and not Baptist. There were a lot of different ways in which the expression of my race came out versus my neighbors and friends. That's really interesting because race within race, is it's not always the same. I think people look at it as there's a Black community and a white community, but there's a lot of diversity within the community. Exactly. We're not monolithic in our culture and in our expression of that culture. And you grew up Catholic. So where did that come from? Which parent? My mom, particularly from Panama. And so you entered the convent at 17. 17 is pretty young. You don't even get to vote yet. Did you have one of those big lightning bolt moments or like what happened? Well, characteristic, I think of that time, you know, it was the late sixties and that was the time of, you know, civil rights and movement. And I thought, as my mother would say, that I was either going to be a nun 
or a damn hippie. And that's what she said. <laughs> and I think she thought when I decided I was going to enter the convent, that that was a safer route than, you know, hanging out, you know, somewhere on the streets. So when I think about that, though, I also was compelled, you know, going to a Catholic high school, an all-girls Catholic high school. And, you know, that's where the nuns as your models, role models, as well as the ones who are influencing you, talked about the call. And when you have a sense of that you want to do something in your life that's going to make a difference, that you're not necessarily thinking about the financial success of it, then it made sense that that's what you would do. We had vocations day where they would come in and talk about, do you want to be a nun or a priest? And I would always like hide because I didn't want God to pick me. But for you, you chose it. And, and did it feel like a celebration at the time or just sort of a career path? It felt like a a call, uh, truly when they talk about it as calling, okay. I knew that I wanted to do something that was meaningful. I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to make a difference in the world. I had always been interested in racial justice because also being the only Black in my class that made a difference. And I always felt somewhat like the human translator from whites to the you know, Blacks and other people of color. And so at that point, what could women do? You could either be a teacher, a nurse, you know, inspired to, or in my case, a nun. <laughs> well, Debbie, I love that you, you the words human translator. I, I grew up uh, Catholic and for eight years of Catholic school, I didn't have a black person in any of my classes. And so I imagine for you being Catholic, you, you were one of the onlys, I'm guessing, through most of your classes. Definitely. One of the only not in our parish, you know, among our family, we went to St. Thomas Aquinas. And at that time, it was a wonderfully, richly diverse, racially diverse parish community. But clearly, in my high school years, I was definitely the only one that was after we moved out to Huntsburg, Ohio, 30 miles outside of Cleveland. So you enter the convent, and you're surrounded by nuns, and they're all white. And I wonder... What did that experience do for you? You spent almost 13 years there. How did it transform you? Well, it transformed me in the way that it gave me a lens into white culture and the differences that I believe influences my life and my work today. I still am the human translator anyways (laughs) for people of people of color as well as whites, translating people of color to whites and whites to people of color. I was also starkly and emotionally impacted by how challenging it is to live in a different culture, even though, you know, you're sharing the same ideas, et cetera, but being racially different made a huge impact on me. So it sounds like the racial difference trumped whatever Catholic bond, that that it was bigger than the spiritual identity, so to speak. Absolutely. I think there's an assumption that the identity that you're going to share is that of the religious community. So your roots and the faith become your identity. But we have to learn and know and recognize that that racial identity is clouding. It is wrapped our faith identity as Catholic or as Christian is very much wrapped in white culture. So it's synonymous. 
Good point. So you left the convent. Was there any one moment that you said, I'm done? Yes, it was when I realized that I was losing myself as an individual and not the individual in some ways that other women were experiencing it, but it was clearly centered around race. I had started a youth group for Black Catholic youth, and it was becoming quite popular. And there were numbers of students that were going into then one of the high schools that was in a traditionally white Irish Catholic neighborhood. And one of the nuns had questioned that kind of presence, so to speak, in the school. And they didn't have an answer for trying to share with the parents for the feeder schools of why the school was becoming quite so Black. And I felt that keenly, that they didn't find in the Gospels or they didn't find it anywhere their share experience to have an answer for saying to these parents that it wasn't a problem or why would something that's becoming more Black now become a problem? So I was very much aware of the racism and I was very much aware that I represented what they were talking about. And so there was a disconnect there. So when you left, did you feel like you left changed spiritually? I mean, I guess I look at being in the comment, some kind of a great spiritual journey. And I don't know if that's true, but when you left, did you feel like you left still feeling like kind of the nun you were inside spiritually? That's a very good question. And I would have to say yes. Because it wasn't really about uh, spirituality or the culture so much in the sense of spiritual growth and development. It was really more about the expression of lifestyle culture that was so embedded in a whiteness (laughs) that I couldn't manage because I still kept my spirituality was strong you know, I still stayed connected to, you know, um, the Catholic Church for a long time. And it was very much still a part of me in my life. So it was really about race. So one last question when it comes to leaving the convent religion, the idea of Jesus being this white figure. I mean, I grew up Catholic and, you know, Jesus probably had blue eyes on our crucifix. I just wonder how do you kind of envision God for you? I, I People don't talk much about race and God. And I wonder for you, How do you see God? I see God as spirit. I've always been very much connected to the spirit. That is what I believe and it inspires me. That's where I get my energy. It's from the spirit. I've never been really connected to the God, the father kind of, you know, white guy on the throne with the beer and all that kind of stuff, or even My faith hasn't been very much Jesus-centered. It was for a period of time, but now when I think about Jesus or I think about it as the Christ in me or the Christ in you, and so I'm very much spiritual-focused and spirit-focused. I like that. I remember Dolly Parton had a quote, God and I have a great relationship, but we see other people. You know, the idea that, you know, we can kind of see God in different ways. So let me move on. You had a fascinating uh, time when you were the staff psychologist in the psychiatric clinic at the Justice Center. And the idea of of working with people who are so troubled and have such difficulty. I wonder, we're learning a lot more about the whole um, racism in the the police system and the 
prison system. And for you, that work as far as working with troubled people, how did that shape your life and your work? Well, it did in the sense that I learned about my own unconscious bias and conscious bias, even in how I did my work with those who I made assumptions about when I was doing the standard mental status examinations or even asking simple questions. I started to note how I was changing my patterns of questions. I would skip like um, your highest grade that you, you know, ever achieved. I would just say, you know, did you graduate from high school? Do you know who your father was? I would start to say those questions and reframe them because I was noticing the pattern. And then I began to check myself about that bias and check myself about how I was interpreting this in the context of, again, what our culture tells us and the systemic racism that's out there. Then you moved into diversity work and and you were the founder and executive director of the diversity management program at Cleveland State. You were chief diversity officer at the Cleveland Clinic. You went to the University of Massachusetts Medical School, UMass Memorial Healthcare System. You've probably trained, I, I don't know, any idea of how many thousands of people? Yes. And that's been a real treat because I have such a passion for learning myself and you always learn in this space. I always say I'm going to learn six months after I'm in the grave on this one. Well, I love that you you just have an excitement for it still and, and it hasn't worn you out. I mean, that's intense work that you do. It really is. And today it's really taken emotional and spiritual toil on so many people who do this work because We are trying to catch up, like I say, 400 years of having this in our system and understanding really systemic racism. I think that's the good news right now is we really are trying to unravel systemic racism versus just understanding it as the structural in our history as slavery or other forms of structural racism, but really seeing how it's racialized right now in our society. And I think that we're finally, white people, myself included, are finally catching up to what you've been doing all along is that, you know, I could say, well, I'm not racist because X, Y, Z, but I, and I'm sure I am in ways I'm still discovering, but I have benefited from a system that left African-Americans out. And I think we're, we're, we're all kind of waking up to that, but you've been awake for a long time, Debbie. Well, the thing about racial identity and understanding racism and being quote, woke, is that you always have to wake up to it. And I do think that we are in different levels of that journey or different parts in that journey. And for whites, it is for many of them, you know, for many whites, this is the first time they really are waking up to the fact of racism and whiteness and what that means and discovering their own racial identity. And for many people of color, They are also um, renewing or trying to understand themselves outside of the context of racism. And in fact, all of us are really trying to do that. You know, does racism doesn't define us as in our racial identity. I know that as a psychologist, but it clearly is shaping how we experience ourselves and how we express ourselves. You have a great quote on your website in one of your blog posts. You said racism has never defined us as a people. Black Americans are a people of deep racial consciousness and high racial esteem rooted in agility, creativity, 
wonder, and stamina. Black Americans evolved to this identity through our own psychological work, and not because whites simply changed their minds and decided that Black people were now acceptable human beings. What I love about that is that sense of the power first of surviving everything from the transit from Africa to here and all that, and all the the real slavery and and, uh, Jim Crow, but even the subtle racism now, but that idea that as a people, you are so much more than that as your identity. And I think sometimes white people see it as I'm tired of hearing about the struggle, but there's more than the struggle to who you are. Exactly. Racism is something like a cancerous tumor that's out there that's affecting all of our lives and it grows. Of course, it's part of shaping who I am and how I respond to the world, but it doesn't define me, nor does it define white people. I'm not one to believe whites are inherently racist. I don't, don't believe that. I do believe that whites have been the beneficiary or whites have been the perpetuators of racism in our country. But I also believe that people of color and to the extent that anyone participates in the attitudes or behaviors or promoting policies or practices that benefits one racial group over another in terms of superiority, then you are practicing racism. All right. Well, we are at the halfway mark. I want to pause and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Deborah Plummer. I know you have a lot of podcast choices and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. So Deborah, you've been doing the work all along. You've been on the front lines and and in times where people didn't respect it. I remember we had diversity training once at a newspaper I worked at. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but we all kind of took it almost not as a joke, but we, we just didn't take it seriously. You know, it was more like we were sentenced to go to the principal's office or something for training. And you probably endure people like us who just didn't really uh, value it at the time. How do you deal with those people that are that don't want to wake up? Yeah, I'm laughing because there is a an episode of The Office that <laughs> with the diversity training session where people are really mocking it out or talking about it. And I always um, recall that. I think I was really blessed with good mentors and formal and informal who really showed me the pedagogy of how to do this work. And I think beginning as an educator myself, I looked to how do you engage particularly adults in this and how do you support people with their readiness to learn this? People support what they help create and taking people where they are. I'm deeply trained in Gestalt theory. And so I look at systems and people and take them where they are. And so I must say that even though I've been doing this work for 30 years and doing a lot of training, I have continued to learn from people and people I think respond because I'm about how do we turn us and them into we. So everybody is a part of this journey. And I don't use shame, you know, as a, as a tool. I think that that helps. I don't try to give a significant emotional event so that people get punched in the stomach and then feel it and then want to change and do something. That's not my style. I try to have people where they are and then engage in conversation. So we join process and engage and that's been good. 
And I must say too, if I'm like, if I can, that I take my inspiration and I always have from people like um, John Lewis, the fact that he could be beaten and have concussions and still go on until his death has always inspired me. I always say that I can take a negative comment. I can take somebody's <laughs> nasty note. That's nothing in compared to what our icons and our civil rights leaders have done to get us where we are. What an amazing human being. I just watched the documentary on his life. Uh, and I love that. Get in good trouble. I'm like, I think some of us were raised, myself included, that police officers are good to do anything against them. You're, you know, that's bad. And so the idea of when it's appropriate to advance the we, so to speak, to get into that trouble and to see everything he did, 45 arrests, to fight for freedom, really for everybody. I mean, everybody's Absolutely. right to vote. Everybody's right to be equally American. I think by connection that this is not just about Blacks or people of color and whites. It's about all of us. And we are in this together. How did his death impact you? His death impact me really by inspiring me to keep going, by knowing that this isn't just about me or just about people of color, that we definitely have to engage. So many of my friends, so many of the people that I had been interviewing and talking to had really felt like they were done with whites, people of color. And when I begin to think about the years and where we are now, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, there were some that just had said, I don't want to have anything to do with them. We So we became, again, separate and siloed and segregated. And you can buy into that, but I think John Lewis's death really said to me, no, again, there's a better way. There's another way we have to do this. He was so powerful in that he could look in the eyes of people who are beating him and see beyond the club and, and know that there's a human being in there who's afraid or ignorant or, or whatever, but he had some kind of grace that is so rare. Yes. Yes. What is really what it's all about. It truly is, you know, how do we treat, how do we understand, how do we work with those we most vehemently disagree with? I want to talk a little bit about the murder of George Floyd. You know, we've had such a litany of names, even here in Cleveland, Tamir Rice, uh, a 12 year old with a toy gun. And even then it didn't change. It didn't change. And then suddenly we all saw a police officer murder a black man and not even caring that he was videotaped. I wonder for you, why was that such a turning point after all these other deaths? Why George Floyd? Why was that the crack that is changing things? It was the, the turning point because systemic racism usually does not have an identifiable individual perpetrator. You know, when you say the criminal justice is racist, I say, no, there's just a few bad apples. We always have some kind of excuse. That video and Derek Chauvin gave a face to systemic racism. The fact that he could put his knee on someone's neck, Mr. Floyd's neck, for eight minutes and 46 seconds until that man died 
and you had three other officers, you had a group of people around, you had a 17-year-old girl filming it with her cell phone. Can you imagine the trauma that she's experiencing? You had an EMT worker saying, may I take his pulse? Can I at least take his pulse? You know, reportedly at least 12, maybe 16 times. That shows you the power of systemic racism, that he could continue to do it, feeling justified and feeling like there was not going to be any consequences as a result. And people felt disempowered to do anything differently. That showed us the power of systemic racism. You know, I think you're you're right, Debbie, because when I watched that and to see that there were all these people and yet since he was a police officer, nobody was allowed to intervene, so to speak. We've created that system where they are the right people, even when they're doing wrong. James Baldwin has a essay, a wonderful essay that we should all go back to. It's written in 1966, and it's about a Black man who is a salesperson, and he's coming out of a store, and he sees a, a police officer beating a young Black boy, and he tries to intervene, and then he ends up being beaten by the police officer himself and arrested and beaten so badly he loses an eye. And then he's walking down the street, still trying to sell his goods. But the story, the essay is so powerful as only James Baldwin can say it. And he's really trying to say, this is again, what racism looks like and the power of it, as well as the fact that this was just a plea for humanity. This was a plea, a call for seeing us in our collective humanity. And it really is debilitating for all of us and just so emotionally horrifying. That's why I think we are finally, again, called to movement around it. Well, you know, it's so powerful because it it feels like a new civil rights movement. His death gave birth to this movement that took the flag down in Mississippi You've got baseball players all kneeling as a team, rolling out a black ribbon when just a year ago, you know, Colin Kaepernick couldn't even get people to respect him at, you know, for what he did as an individual. Do you think this is going to continue or do you think it's going to be kind of a passing phase? I think it is, hopefully not the passing phase, but I think it is continuous, but also I think it's new. I was a young teenager in the 1960s with the, the civil rights movement then, And in the 70s and 80s, when we had this same kind of burst, what I think is different now is that whites are engaging in a different way and not just holding on to the social privilege and still looking at it as something that's happening to someone else, but seeing how it is happening to all of us. I think, as we talked about earlier, Whites are coming to this understanding of themselves in their their white identity. And I do think because we have a younger generation who's far more attuned to their multiple and intersecting identity and racism as something that not only shouldn't happen, but not necessary, and they have power to change it. Like they look at us like we eat babies for breakfast or something like, why is that? You know, what are you doing? And I think then there is some hope that we will make this successive approximation to that goal of that beloved community. We may get there. You know, still, we've got a long way to go. We've got a lot of individual and collective work to do. 
but it feels to me like a better push with Black Lives Matter movement and people really trying to understand it and grasp it. So when we talk about what to do, I, I've read so many books. I, I mean, I, I admit that I failed to learn what I should have learned that wasn't in the history books. I had no idea about what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma until this year. The whole Wall Street community of Black people that was burned down to the ground by rioting white people. I, yeah. I didn't even know that had happened. And I'm embarrassed to say, I'm, and I was a journalist for 30 years, and I have two degrees, and I still didn't know basic African-American history. So, Deborah, I'm wondering, what are the steps we can take? And I've had people say, don't ask Black people what to do. You should go figure it out. But you're an actual trained person to help people like me and, and our listeners. What are some of the basic things that we can do, no matter what our starting point is? You always say start where people are. So if people are pretty rough, they're just waking up, what's a good start for them to keep going? Embedded in your question, you have the start. Because... When you said that you didn't realize some of these things happened historically, know that that's intentional. That was intentional. And not only did you not know it, but that history was the same one that was being given to us, mm-hmm. I want to say us as Black people, and to a nation. Our textbooks have been sanitized to the happy slave story. It's been sanitized to look at the reconstruction period is that slavery was ended and then all of a sudden black and brown people just ended up you know buying houses and living the american dream when we know that that is not true so continuing to educate yourself and having these conversations there are so many wonderful books out there now and it's really rewarding to see so many of them on the new york times bestseller list that will really help to reshape our understanding of history. I think that's a first step. Another step is having this conversation with others, particularly if you can have it across racial lines. I think that that's a, a good thing. And where we can do these, have these conversations with equal status relationships. That's why I'm a cross-racial friendship activist as well. So reading or listening to podcasts like this one, you know, listening to TED Talks, movies, all of those things is going to help correct our understanding of what we thought was our shared American experience and try to make that a a truly shared one. That's beautiful. I know I have uh, made myself watch videos of young African-Americans talking really heartfelt in, in real deep pain about their experience. And I got to tell you, I felt so uncomfortable. I wanted to just kind of say, okay, I got it. And I made myself sit and listen and really feel as much as I can as a white person to really let my heart be open to feel what, what must that pain feel like? I think sometimes we just want to intellectualize it and say, oh, I understand without kind of as a human to human connecting. Exactly. Willful ignorance is no longer an excuse in this day and age with the number of resources that are available. So if you can sit in the comfort and not say, well, I don't have to learn about that. or I don't need to know, or I don't care about Confederate flags and symbols. You know, what does that have to do with my daily living? I don't think that's an excuse anymore because we really have to know how that connectivity happens and how that gets translated into policies 
and practices and when we're talking about who we vote for and what information we believe and don't believe. I think that that's important to have that. Well, Debbie, we just have a few minutes left. I wonder, you're kind of now retired officially from working for others and you're doing your own business now. And, and re- I'm sure it's going to be even more important. But I wonder, how do you take care of yourself? You're, you've been on the front lines for 30 years. You're still out there. What do you do to nurture you so you don't get so emotionally and spiritually kind of bankrupt from giving away? Thank you for even asking that question, because that is really one of the ways I try to take care of myself is doing that checkpoint. I am a big fan of those purposeful pauses, mindfulness practices. I love my Calm app. That really helps me to get through many of the days. And even when I'm doing um, sessions, sometimes I'll just see the waterfall just to calm down and do that breathing. I listen to gospel music all the time. Even the spirit of that gets me going. I may not necessarily connect with some of the theology of some of the songs, but I'm always there with the spirit and the energy. That's a daily routine for me. Those help me. And then staying connected to what I say are the other dreamers, creators, imaginers, of the kind of world that we all want to live in. That is beautiful. That alone, to do that, I think would give us all hope. Exactly. Uh, Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tell us the best way to connect with you on your website and social media. The website is dlplumber.com. There's a lot of information on there, and I put a lot of my resources on there as well that you can get to. My Twitter is at Debbie Plummer, and I'm on Facebook at Deborah L. Plummer. Okay, and I'll have links to that on my website, reginabrett.com. You know, my biggest takeaway today is really those last words to really stay close to those dreamers and imaginators and creators, the John Lewis's that are maybe just now coming to life and taking his place. Uh, My last question for you. Debbie, what's the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? The best thing I do, I think, is to really stay focused on the end game. (laughs) That this is really about love. This is about staying connected to our core identity. I always think about the human it's like an onion and it's got all those layers. And often the time we're acting out of those layers. But when we can act out of our core, you know, that stem and that center of the onion. So my core is speaking to your core. That's when we get that connection. That is beautiful. I hear the nun in you coming out. <laughs> no, that spirit, that spirit is so yeah. powerful. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope we can have another conversation soon. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people.
Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.